welcome to Right Here, Right Now Radio here on Sin Nation. You're with Eleanor. And Kate. Before we get into a cracking show tonight, we have to do something very important. Sin acknowledges and pays respect to the owners of the land on which the House of Sin and Studios stand, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. Sin also acknowledges and pays respect to the elders and traditional owners of the lands our content reaches, as well as the radio stations we broadcast from across the country. And there's something else that we need to say, Kate? Yeah, that's right. We just need to remind readers, um, listeners, that we're reading from Creative Works tonight, and some of the themes covered might not be for everyone. So if little or sensitive ears um, are tuned in, you might want to switch stations. Thank you, Kate. Now, we've got a great show coming up, a couple of listener submissions, a few slam poetry pieces. And to kick us off, I'm going to be reading a short story from the Canary Press short story magazine. This piece is called How to Make a Good Script Great by Edgar Kerrett. My girlfriend thinks I'm a sucker, that people are always screwing me, that I look like I'm asking for it. Four months ago, right out of the army, we took a trip to America, and she says the price I paid for the tickets was a rip-off. She also thinks I'm too skinny, but she's not pissed off at me about that because it's not my fault. After we landed in New York, we put our stuff in the lobby and went out to see the city. A hundred metres from our hotel, in the middle of the street, there's a black guy sitting on the sidewalk, About a hundred books are arranged around him on the kind of crooked paving stones they only have in Manhattan, and all the books have the same title, written in yellow, letters on the cover. How to make a good script great. I always wanted to be a screenwriter. I even tried to write one when I was in high school, but nothing ever came of it. Definitely not anything great. And that's why I finally registered to major in psychology except that the whole business with the black guy in the books seemed a little mystical to me. Like some kind of tip from God. My girlfriend said I shouldn't dare buy anything from him because those books he was selling were obviously stolen or fake or infested with worms. But I insisted. I didn't have enough revelations in my life to be choosy. So at least check that the pages aren't blank, she said. I checked. The black guy wanted $7 for the book. I only had a $100 bill. He didn't have change. Keep an eye on the books, he said. I'll hop over to the newspaper store across the street to change it. My girlfriend whispered to me in Hebrew not to let him go. For a black guy, a hundred dollars is a fortune, she said. If he crosses the street now, you can kiss your money goodbye. But I didn't say anything to him. After all, the man left about a hundred books on the sidewalk. A hundred books that were worth seven hundred dollars. I knew he'd come back. And he did. Crossing the street in our direction, he smiled and waved a small bundle of $20 bills at us. I really wanted to say something nasty to my girlfriend, but at that exact moment, a truck ran over him. He died on the spot. That was easy to see because even though he was lying on his stomach, his eyes were looking at the sky. He kept smiling, and that was a little scary. The truck driver who ran him over was skinny all over except for his stomach. From afar, he looked like a snake that swallowed a tennis ball. He was on his knees near the truck, crying and wailing for God to forgive him. An ambulance came and the doctor closed the black guy's eyes and tried to pry open the fingers clutching the money, but they must have been closed really tight. So in the end, they had to load him into the ambulance with our $100 in $20 bills in his hand, and then they drove off. When the police car arrived, my girlfriend said that I had to tell them about the money, otherwise the people in the hospital would take it for themselves or they'd donate it to charity or something. By then, I didn't care about that at all. I just wanted to get away from there. But I knew that with her, it was a matter of principle and she wouldn't back down, so I went over to their chief and explained the whole business to him. He cursed me and told me to get the hell out of his sight. I don't think he believed me. My girlfriend said I should insist but the second time he was even less pleasant and said that if I didn't shut my mouth, he'd arrest me for disorderly conduct. After that, they put the skinny guy with the pot belly into the police car, got in themselves and drove away. 
My girlfriend made me pick up 15 copies from the sidewalk, which was coming to us for the $100 we'd invested, plus $5 compensation for the fact there was nothing we could do with them, and took them to the hotel. That night I stayed awake and read the book, each chapter in a different copy. The next morning I told her that I'd decided not to study psychology. She said my problem was that I didn't know what I wanted in life, and on top of that, I was too skinny and a sucker. And now, because I'd changed my mind so late, they wouldn't return my registration fee. When we came back to Israel, she left me, and I started writing a script. It was about twins born in the deep south to a black woman and a white man. One of the twins was black, the other white. In the script, their white grandfather hated blacks, and that's why, when they were born, he set fire to their farmhouse, and the mother died. Her husband ran into the burning house to try and save her, but he died too. Only the twins survived. They were separated and grew up in different towns, but in their hearts they always knew that they weren't alone and they would meet in the end. And they really did, 40 years after they were separated, but under very sad circumstances, because the white twin accidentally ran over the black one with his truck. But a second before the truck killed him, the black one realised that he had met his twin, and that's why he died with a smile of joy on his face a smile that gave his brother the strength to get through the long years he was in prison. Meanwhile, my ex-girlfriend found a new boyfriend. His name's Doobie, and he's a medical student. I asked him if it was possible for twins to be two different colours, one black and one white. He said no, and that's why, if I had even a drop of professional integrity, I should bury the script forever. As he was saying that, a thick vein in his forehead was pulsing. I think he's a little jealous. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> Thank you. That was How to Make a Good Script Great by Edgar Kerrett. Oh, and what a great story that was. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I was trying not to laugh the whole way through. It's a bit of a dark humour. Yeah, it is a dark humour. Yeah. I um I remember reading this story at a cafe after getting a haircut and just finding it really funny and engaging. Mm. Um so I thought it would be a great one to read on our show. It definitely was. Now what do you have? lined up for us next, Kate? Well, this one, um, it's a slam poetry by um, Nial Israel, and um, it's not as light and hu- humorous. It is, um, it's a bit of a heavier piece, but I think it's really important um, and it's very interesting. So have a listen. Great. When a black man walks... You ever see a black man walk? It's like rhythm and meat, it got up off the page and decided to move and glide with spirit. You ever see a black man walk in the room, Mars cold style, like keep tap dancing, I'm here. In those steps of messages, and you have to listen carefully, they trying to kill me, stop searching, frisk me. There are prayers in a black man's walk. Don't let them shoot me down where I'm standing. Don't let the white chalk lines find me. Don't let me die in the streets like an animal. I'm a man, I swear I'm a man. When a black man walks, a whole generation lives to see another day, another sunrise, another mouth to feed, another seed, another sacrifice saved, another poem, another hungry burning cross, another mother breathing in her son's ear. Move easy, move quietly. Keep your head down, boy, don't matter if you're 16 or 60. When a black man walks, he is always hunted. He is always animal. He is always standing out like a living corpse. He smells like a KKK appetizer. Nuggets of his own flesh dipped in his own blood. When a black man walks, he often finds white women walking closely behind him. But you can't blame a white sister for liking the way a black man walks. She understands some things and is cool with the fact that her babies will have nappy hair, even though she will not know how to comb it. When a black man walks, wait for it. Listen to the orchestra playing beneath his feet. Pay attention to the vibrations when he walks in a room. See how many faces change the fear in the presence of a black man. See how many women hold their purse so tightly their fingers grow numb. See how many men hide their eyes wishing the darkness would go away. Maybe choke itself to death. 
that ugly two-third human being, that next-to-nothing black dot, that useless prison black spot. When a black man walks, every day he is like Jesus, paranoid of crucifixion. Every day he is like Trayvon, knowing that his hoodie had nothing to do with his last breath. If only bullets could kill racism, poverty, and the traumas of slavery. You pay attention when a black man walks. You listen when a black man walks. His feet have a mind of their own, a compass, a homing device. 400 years of directions, find your way home safely. Don't let Jim Crow steal your soul. Don't let gentrification lose your memory. Don't let police brutality castrate you. Do what your mama said do. Run, 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 when their teeth are already covered in blood. Do what your mama said do. Run, 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 when a black man walks. He ain't got time to walk. Death is always like, black men are the easiest to find. They are the strongest but the most fragile. They are the calm and the storm. They die like they expect to. When a black man walks, think of it as a masterpiece, a beautiful song that you may only hear once. Cherish it. You may never hear it again. Um, and that was When a Black Man Walks by Neil Israel. And um, you can find uh, more po slam poems like that and at Button Poetry on YouTube. Yeah, we love Button Poetry, don't we? Yeah, it's a great resource. The next piece is a submission from a listener. And it's a poem if you also want to submit. Next week is our last show, so get in quick. Uh, you can email us at righthereradio at gmail.com. That's right here radio with a W. Now this next piece is Aviators by Carl Walsh. We inhabit the shade cast spaces where we wane post rain, sun fails to grasp, and hold the tarmac or concrete foot, paths where we still from our walking to look into the light. This morning, Crow left a black feather fluttering in his wake and it falls before us, in a gentle stilling of moment that holds us for a moment in the confusion between earth and sky. Together we twine, Crow, you and I, to feel the moment through taloned feet, the drift of tail, bite of beak and ruffle, of air where arms have scorned skin for feathers. On time-laden wings, we loop and meet the sky, where sky meets earth, to plunge between. Known and unknown, our feathers shabby, and dust-filled, our eyes beady, bird eyes sharp, in their forgetfulness. That was Aviators by Carl Walsh, and you can find that poem on Stylus Lit, an Australian biannual online literary journal publishing poetry, short fiction, novel excerpts, creative, non-fiction interviews and reviews. That's Stylus Lit. Wow, they really do it all. They do it all. <laughs> Thank you for that submission, Carl. Um, and next up, we have um, some experts from um, a book called Two Boys Kissing and it's um, a contemporary young adult like fiction by David Leviton. And I really just enjoy his writing because it's quite almost otherworldly. Mm. And um, some bits of this novel are in third person, and I'm going to read a few of those bits for you now. Great. Thank you, Kate. You can't know what it is like for us now. You will always be one step behind us. Be thankful for that. You can't know what it is like for us then. You will always be one step ahead. Be thankful for that too. Trust us. There is a nearly perfect balance between the past and the future. As we become the distant past, you become a future few of us would have imagined. It is hard to think of such things when you are busy dreaming or loving or screwing. The t context falls away. We are a spirit burden you carry, like that of your grandparents or the friends from ch your childhood who at some point moved away. We try to make it as light a burden as possible. And at the same time, when we see you, we cannot help but think of ourselves. We were once the ones who were dreaming 
and loving and screwing. We were once the ones who were living and then we were the ones who were dying. We screwed ourselves a thread's width into your history. We were once like you, only our world wasn't like yours. You have no idea how close to death you came. A generation or two earlier, you might have been here with us. We resent you. You astonish us. If you are a teenager now, it is unlikely that you knew us well. We are your shadow uncles, your angel godfathers, your mother's or your grandmother's best friend from college. The author of the book you found in the gay section of the library. We are the characters in a Tony Kushner play or names on a quilt that rarely gets taken out anymore. We are the ghost of the remaining old generation. You know some of our songs. We do not want to haunt you too somberly. We do not want our legacy to be gravitous. You wouldn't want to live your life like that. You wouldn't want to be remembered like that either. Your mistake would be to find our commonality in our dying. The living part mattered more. We taught you how to dance. So that was just um, two different experts from Two Boys Kissing. And um, before I said it was in third person, but I meant second person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, so it's just a bit of an interesting, like an omnipresent kind of telling. And it's um, it's from the perspective of the dead kind of gay people, gay um generation that came before mm. and it's they they use it as kind of like a chorus throughout the book yeah it's really interesting I really love the title of it um because it's two boys kissing it just tells you what it's going to be about but it's not trying to hide it in any way you know it's yeah it's really it's a great book I would recommend giving it a read yeah um thanks for that Kate next up we have a performance of Marco Ramirez's I Am Not Batman performed by Jesse Perez and Matt Johnson for a TED talk. Uh, this one goes for about nine minutes so settle in. It's a great piece though and quite very engaging right from the get-go. So this is Jesse Perez and Matt Johnson performing Marco Ramirez's I Am Not Batman. Red. And if you squint, you can maybe see the moon through a thick layer of cigarette smoke and airplane exhaust that covers the whole city like a mosquito net that won't let the angels in. And if you look up high enough, you could see me standing on the edge of an 87-story building. And up there, a place for gargoyles and broken clock towers that have stayed still and dead for maybe like a hundred years. Up there is me. And I'm freaking Batman. And I got Batmobiles and Batarangs and frickin' Batcaves, like, for real. And all it takes is a broom closet or a back room or a fire escape, and Danny's hand-me-down jeans are gone. And my navy blue polo shirt, the one that looks kind of good on me but has that hole on it near the butt from when it got snagged on the chain-link fence behind Arturo's, but it isn't even a big deal because I tucked that part in and it's, like, all good. That blue polo shirt, it's gone, too. And I get, like, like, transformational. And nobody pulls out a belt and whips Batman for talking back or for not talking back. And nobody calls Batman simple or stupid or skinny. And nobody fires Batman's brother from the Eastern Taxi Company because they was making cutbacks neither. Because they got nothing but respect. And not like afraid respect, just like respect respect. Because nobody's afraid of you. Because Batman doesn't mean nobody no harm. Ever. Because all Batman really wants to do is save people and maybe pay Abuela's bills one day and die happy and maybe get, like, mad famous, for real. Oh, and kill the Joker. Tonight, like most nights, I'm all alone. And I'm watching. And I'm waiting. Like an eagle. Or like a... No, yeah, like an eagle. And my cape is flapping in the wind because it's freaking long and my pointy ears are on and that mask that covers like half my face is on too. And I got like bulletproof stuff all in my chest so no one can hurt me. And nobody, nobody is going to come between Batman and justice. From where I am, I could hear everything. Somewhere in the city, there's an old lady picking styrofoam leftovers up out of a trash can and she's putting a piece of sesame chicken someone spit out into her own mouth. <laughs> 
And somewhere there's a doctor with a whack haircut and a black lab coat trying to find a cure for the diseases that are going to make us all extinct for real one day. And somewhere there's a man, a man in a janitor's uniform, stumbling home drunk and dizzy after spending half his paycheck on 40-ounce bottles of twist-off beer and the other half on a four-hour visit to some lady's house on a street where the lights have all been shot out by people who'd rather do what they do in this city in the dark. And half a block away from janitor man, there's a group of good-for-nothings who don't know no better, waiting for janitor man with rusted bicycle chains and imitation Louisville sluggers, and if they don't find a scent on him, which they won't, they'll just pound at him till the muscles in their arms start burning, till there's no more teeth to crack out. But they don't count on me. They don't count on no dark night with the stomach full of grocery store brand macaroni and cheese and cut-up Vienna sausages. Because they'd rather believe I don't exist. And from 87 stories up, I could hear one of the good-for-nothings say, give me the cash, real fast like that, just give me the fucking cash. And I see janitor man mumble something in drunk language and turn pale. And from 87 stories up, I could hear his stomach trying to hurl its way out of his dickies. So I swoop down like mad fast, and I'm like darkness. I'm like, swoosh. And I throw a batarang at the one naked light bulb. And they're all like, whoa, motherfucker, who just turned out the lights? <laughs> What's that over there? What? Give me what you got, old man. Did anybody hear that? Hear what? There ain't nothing. No, really, there ain't no bat. But then, one out of the three good-for-nothing gets it to the head. Bow! And number two swings blindly into the dark cape before him. But, but before his fist hits anything, I grab a trash can lid and right in the gut. And number one comes back with the jump kick, but I know judo karate too, so I'm like... Twice. But before I can do any more damage, suddenly we all hear a click, click. And suddenly everything gets quiet. And the one good-for-nothing left standing grips a handgun and aims it straight up like he's holding Jesus hostage, like he's threatening maybe to blow a hole in the moon. And the good-for-nothing who got it to the head who tried to jump kick me and the other good-for-nothing who got it in the gut is both scrambling back away from the dark figure before him. And the drunk man, the janitor man, is huddled in a corner praying to St. Anthony because that's the only one he could remember. And there's me, eyes glowing white, cape blowing softly in the wind. Bulletproof chest heaving, my heart beating right through it in a Morse code for fuck with me just once, come on, just try. And the one good for nothing left standing, the one with the handgun, yeah, he laughs and he lowers his arm and he points it at me and gives the moon a break and he aims it right between my pointy ears like goalposts and he's special teams. And janitor man is still calling St. Anthony, but he ain't picking up. And for a second, it seems like maybe I'm going to lose. Nah! Shoot, shoot, wakata! Don't kill me, man! Snap, wrist crack, neck, slash, skin meets acid! Ah! And he's on the floor, and I'm standing over him, and I got the gun in my hands now, and I hate guns. I hate holding them because I'm Batman. And Asterix, Batman don't like guns because his parents got iced by guns a long time ago. But for just a second, my eyes glow white, and I hold this thing for I could speak to the good-for-nothing in a language he maybe understands. Click, click. And the good-for-nothings become good for disappearing into whatever toxic waste, chemical sludge shithole they crawled out of. And it's just me and janitor man. And I pick him up, and I wipe sweat and cheap perfume off his forehead, and he begs me not to hurt him, and I grab him tight by his janitor man's shirt collar, and I pull him to my face, and he's taller than me, but the cape helps, so he listens when I look him straight in the eyes, and I say two words to him. Go home. And he does, checking behind his shoulder every 10 feet. And I swoosh from building to building on his way there because I know where he lives. And I watch his hands tremble as he pulls out his keychain and opens the door to his building. And I'm back in bed before he even walks in through the front door. And I hear him turn on the faucet and pour himself a glass of warm tap water. And he puts the glass back in the sink. And I hear his footsteps. And they get slower as they get to my room. And he creaks my door open like mad slow. And he takes a step in, which he never does. And he's staring off into nowhere, his face the color of sidewalks in summer. 
And I act like I'm just waking up and I say, oh, what's up, Pop? And janitor man says nothing to me. But I see in the dark, I see his arms go limp and his head turns back like towards me. And he lifts it for I could see his face, for I could see his eyes. And his cheeks is dripping, but not with sweat. And he just stands there breathing like he remembers my eyes glowing white, like he remembers my bulletproof chest, like he remembers he's my pop. And for a long time, I don't say nothing. And he turns around, hand on the doorknob, and he ain't looking my way, but I hear him mumble two words to me. I'm sorry. And I lean over and I open my window just a crack. If you look up high enough, you could see me. And from where I am, I could hear everything. That was Jesse Pretz performing Marco Ramirez's I Am Not Batman with Matt Johnson. Such a great piece, that one. Wow, yeah, what a roller coaster. I really liked it. Yeah, so much energy in that performance. Mm. <laughs> Next up, we have another submitter for our radio show here, right here, right now. This is a piece by Richard Phoenix, and it's called The Great War. As I walk to my death at the 12-gun salute, I think back to my days in this horrible war and I would not change a thing, not one at all. I did what I did to protect my fellow man in this great and vicious war, and now I will be punished unjustly. As a higher-up believes, killing a general has more life than the common soldier. My men were fearing for their very lives. I would have not changed anyone, not one bit. Will they tell my daughter her child with a smile I shall never see again? I can say with unrelenting certainty that my family will know I died protecting my fellow man in a war so evil and unneeded. This war was dark, depressing and painful, boys dying too young around. But I am old and had not much to live for, and so I shall take my punishment, knowing the true evil this great war has been conquered, and with my death no longer in vain, as I protected the people I hold so dear, so they can go home to their mothers, fathers and wives. No son shall not make it home because of my sacrifice. This was truly the great war. That was Poem of the Great War by a submitter here, Richard Phoenix, who reached out to us on Facebook. Thank you very much for that, Richard. That was on our Facebook page right here, Radio. Yeah, that was a lovely piece as well. We have some really great pieces. We do. You know, we certainly submitted. do. And if you want to submit, absolutely go ahead and do it. You'll, you'll regret it if you don't. <laughs> exactly. What do you have next for us, Kate? Um, well, next I have um, a piece from um, a publication called Enscribe, and it's a free publication. Um, I can't completely remember where I got it from, <laughs> but it is full of short stories, and this one is by Pirithi Rao, and it's called Last Week's Lunch. What's that smell? Megan whined, her nose, her nose wrinkling in distaste as she spun around to face her two friends, Rangi and Gina. They had fallen a few paces behind as they walked home from school. Oh yeah, I can smell that too, Gina said, turning her head from side to side as though she expected the source of the smell to suddenly materialise behind the electricity pole or the wire fence of number 96. I can't really smell anything, Rangi responded. She took some hesitant steps forward, hoping the others would follow. Oh my god, Rangi, it's coming from your bag, Megan squealed. Yuck, Gina spat out. Rangi looked at them and shuddered slightly. She always knew this day would come after Gina had joined their duo. Three was always a dangerous number in a group of friends. The memory of Megan's trampoline, which, was only, which only accommodated two jumpers, was still too recent for Rangi to forget the experience of being left out. It was basic mathematics. And now that same mathematics was at play today. 
Gina and Megan stared at Rangi, their faces partly shadowed by their floppy broad-brimmed hats. Once they had all worn legionnaires' caps, but Rangi had missed the me- that memo and now the back of her flap cap stuck to her neck uncomfortably. Oh yes, it's definitely coming from your bag, Gina confirmed while prodding at the faded nylon school issue bag. What have you got in there, Rangi? Mina, uh, Megan asked. What was in there? Rangi thought hard. She had her maths textbook and her exercise books. There was probably a thousand sheets of paper, half-finished worksheets or scraps of drawings. But there must have been something else, something that was making the smell that she had somehow failed to notice. Seconds before Megan spoke, Rangi knew what she would say. Let's see what it is then. Yeah, I can't walk home without smell following us all the way, Gina agreed. There was nothing Rangi could do but submit her bag to scrutiny. This was not new to her. After all, Amma made her do it almost every day to check that she had eaten her lunch. But since Ragnish, her older brother, had stopped, spotted the bin at the corner of their street, she had passed the test quite easily. When they had walked home together, a stop at the bin was made part of their routine as as well, it was as much as part of their routine as Mr. Zhang's milk bar. But Raki was in high school now, and Rangi didn't always remember. She had been in trouble a few times already. Amma had yelled and berated her, sometimes even giving her a smack with the wooden spoon. All these soggy chapatis, fragrant mint pulas, and tangy pickles left untouched in her lunchbox. Gina and Megan had been efficient, and all her things were now piled haphazardly on the nature strip. Gina had discovered a stick somewhere and gingerly poked at the offending lunchbox. Megan wrapped her hands with the excess sleeves of her jumper and proceeded to hold up the box to the light. What is this? Megan spluttered, choking on the fumes. Rangi stared at the container, and that's when she remembered what it was. It was the Illidus from last week. She had begged for those soft, round, fluffy patties of rice, which had now been stewing in the coconut chutney for far too long. Once these idyllists had been little half—once those idyllists had been little half snowballs, but now green mould turned the white mounds into something entirely alien. Even if they hadn't, how could Rangi explain idyllists? What would she say? That they were made of soaked and steamed rice combined with two different types of lentils? That they had to ferment in a big bowl for days to give them that slightly sour taste? That in spite of Rangi's love for Idolus, she still hadn't eaten any, just as she hadn't eaten her, eaten her lunches every day since prep. Rangi didn't say any of these things. Instead, she th- drew in a breath and announced, They're stale cupcakes. I completely forgot about them. And without another word, she raced down the street to dispose of the evidence. And that was last week's lunch by Perithi Raul. That's such a anxiety-inducing piece, but really fun. Yeah, I think, as well. <laughs> yeah, I think we've all, you know, had a bit of um, insecurity about, you know, friendships and fitting in, and mm. I think it's, you know, interesting to see. Yeah. That written down. Very true. Um, I think that line about three being harder than two (laughs) feels very relevant. Yes, (laughs) yes, exactly, yeah. Even now. (laughs) Um, Well, great. Thank you for that. And great um, resource to find in Scribe. What have you got up next for us? So we're going to be playing a bit later on an interview with Paul Oster. And uh, this is – I'm going to read out the opening of – his book, The New York Trilogy, although it's sort of three books, but it's called The New York Trilogy, and it's what he's probably best known for. He's an American author, and this is a crime detective piece that, yeah, is quite (laughs) interesting. So here it goes. It was a wrong number that started it, the telephone ringing three times in the dead of the night, and the voice on the other end asking for someone he was not. Much later, when he was able to think about the things that happened to him, he would conclude that nothing was real except chance. But that was much later. In the beginning, there was simply the event and its consequences. Whether it might have turned out differently, 
or whether it was all predetermined with the first word that came from the stranger's mouth is not the question. The question is the story itself and whether or not it means something is not for the story to tell. As for Quinn, there is little that need detain us. Who he was, where he came from and what he did are of no great importance. We know, for example, that he was 35 years old. We know that he had once been married, had once been a father, and that both his wife and son were now dead. We also know that he wrote books. To be precise, we know that he wrote mystery novels. These works were written under the name of William Wilson, and he produced them at the rate of about one a year, which brought in enough money for him to live modestly in a small New York apartment. Because he spent no more than five or six months on a novel, for the rest of the year he was free to do as he wished. He read many books, he looked at paintings, he went to the movies. In the summer he watched baseball on television. In the winter he went to the opera. More than anything else, however, what he liked to do was walk. Nearly every day, rain or shine, hot or cold, he would leave his apartment to walk through the city, never really going anywhere, but simply going where his legs happened to take him. That was the start of the New York Trilogy by Paul Oster. And um, I think that sort of goes to show why he's such a well-known author. That's such yeah. a gripping Yeah, it really is. Opener. It um, really, yeah, it really just gets you wanting to jump right in. It does. You know, the he's widowed and, you know, his wife and son have died. You know, there's a big mystery there already. Oh. <laughs> now, to hear more about how he sort of became the author of material like that, we're going to hear a little interview with Paul Oster from the Louisiana Channel, and it's all about how he first got into writing and reading. Yes. Some great inspiration in this piece. So without further ado. Well, it's funny that I I came from a family in which uh, neither one of my parents had a higher education. They finished high school and that was it. No, no university. They weren't readers of books. There were very few books in the house. Um, <coughs> but I grew up in a town with a good public library and I would go and get books out and read them. And from around the time of eight or so, I can remember being actively interested in reading books particularly uh, fiction and also biographies. I read a lot of these little biographies written for children. You know, Joan of Arc or Abraham Lincoln or, you know, any one of these historical figures. And and I seem to remember that when I was around nine, I, uh, I wrote my first poem. It's walking along... It was a Saturday, and I was all by myself, and I was wandering through this little town, walking through a park, and uh, it was spring, and it was really pretty out. Maybe it was the first beautiful day of the year, and I remember how happy it made me feel. And um, so I kept on walking into the town, and I bought a, uh, a pen and a notebook, And I went back to the park, and I sat down, and I wrote a poem about spring. Now, I think it's probably the worst poem ever written. I mean, it was absolutely stupid. And, um, but I I felt more alive doing this than any other activity. I felt more connected to the world by looking closely at it and trying to write about it. And it, it created a very good feeling. And then I kept trying to write as a child (coughs) stories, you know, imitating people like Robert Louis Stevenson. I liked him. So I I would write, you know, absurd things like, in the year of our Lord, 1751, I was wandering in a raging snowstorm, looking for the house of my ancestors. You know, this this kind of stuff, adventure stories. but I liked it, and I liked the tone of uh, Stevenson and Poe, I, I, I liked also, and Sherlock Holmes, Conan Doyle. I, I, those were the 
writers I really enjoyed as a boy because I wasn't really capable of reading much else. Um, <clears throat> a good example would be when I was 11, right? It's 1958. Boris Pasternak wins the Nobel Prize. And it was a big deal in the press because the Russians, the Soviet Union, would not allow him to go to Stockholm to accept the prize. So it was a big um, moment in the Cold War. Mm. Well, uh, right around that time, uh, an English translation of Dr. Zhivago was published. And I'm only 11 years old, and I think to myself, I have to read this book because this is supposed to be great literature. And I really have never read great literature, but maybe this is a chance to start. So I think it was the second book I ever bought with my own money. I had my Edgar Allan Poe. And um, I bought Dr. Zhivago. I think it was $3.95, big fat book, and I start reading it, and I didn't understand what I was reading. It made no sense to me. I remember there were some people standing in the rain at a funeral, and I, I, I read it again, the first page. I, I still couldn't follow it. And I thought, well, maybe if I go to the second page and see what, what's going on in I still couldn't follow it. And after trying and trying and trying, I closed the book and I put it away. I couldn't do it. I wasn't ready. The funny thing is I've never read Dr. Zhivago. <laughs> I never went back. I've read a lot of other Pasternak, his poetry, but I never read that book. <laughs> that was Paul Auster talking about his early introduction into reading and writing right there. And I think it was a, a great, you know, interview because he really talks about having influences in his life. I think that's important for us all to be, you know, reading and getting these influences. Exactly. And I really like as well that he describes it being difficult to read Edgar Allan Poe <laughs> because I think... Um, it's very relatable. Exactly. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, you don't just suddenly wake up and are capable of reading that. So yeah. I really liked that interview. What do you have next up for us, Kate? Um, next up is another, um, uh, this one's a poem from Enscribe, um, a free publication published in 2017. And um, this piece is called My Country and it's titled, um, and it's by Maggie um, Jan Koloska. And um, she's a writer and teacher from Melbourne um, and she has a Twitter, which is, you can um, follow her at Maggie, um, M-A-G-G-I-E-J-A-N-K, Maggie Jank, yeah. on Twitter. <laughs> so um, here it is, My Country by Maggie Jankaloska. My country has one name, without an asterisk or acronym, my country smells of propika, hunger, and pig shit. My country has outlasted Ottoman oppression and communist ideals of brotherhood and unity. My dress hangs here. My country exports its best and brightest and delays payslips every month. My country praises its heroes after they are dead. My country is made of red-hot dirt, but it's fat from bribes. My dress hangs here. My country is alive during summer months when tourists empty their pockets. My country is sold by men full of empty words. My country is held up by withered, toothless women. Yes, my dress hangs here. That was my country by Maggie Jankaloska. Um, I just think it's a really sweet piece. Yeah, really yeah. powerful. Yeah, yeah. It says it all. It's short, but it says it all. It does, yeah. Thank you very much, Maggie, and mm. Enscribe for publishing that piece. Yeah. And where are we going next, Eleanor? Where we're going next is, yeah. that was very relevant, a poem called My Country, because I'm going to read a poem from 100 Australian Poems You Need to Know, edited by Jamie Grant. This is 
a piece called On Having Grown Old by Ernest G. Moll. Now are those peaks unscalable Sierras against a darkening sky. I may not climb, sure of my skill, contemptuous of errors, their crags as gaily as once upon a time. To reach those heights, now, even were I able, were but to push a faltering heart too far, and to be laid out at last on a stone table, bare to the gaze of a mortician star. No, never again, but from the dull plain counting, before dark what them every hazardous peak, I'll let my eyes leap in a swift upmounting, to what I knew, and having known, still seek, then, on my slab, while stars put on their white uniforms, yield myself to absolute night. That wow. was On Having Grown Old by Ernst G. Mole. Another great, powerful little piece. Yeah. Quite sad, really. Yeah. <laughs> but really beautifully written. Yes, yeah. Definitely. Now, that's all the all we have for you this evening. <laughs> but if you're interested in sending us a submission, where should they find us, Kate? So you can find us on Facebook at Right Here Radio and, again, on Instagram at Right Here Radio. Yeah. Um, and also, please f- submit your pieces to um, at Right Here Radio at gmail.com. Yeah, we really committed to that. Yeah, we handle. really did. We, <laughs> we took it and we ran with it. We did. <laughs> um, but, yeah, we would love your submissions. They really... They really do keep the show alive and, yeah, we really enjoy reading them. Yes, yeah, so true. So thanks again to our submitters tonight and we're going to leave you with Truman Capote reading from Breakfast at Tiffany's. This was recorded in April 1963. I've got the most terrifying man downstairs, she said, stepping off the fire escape into the room. I mean, he's sweet when he isn't drunk, but let him start lapping up the vino on, oh, God, Cal Beast. <clears throat> if there's one thing I loathe, it's men who bite. <laughs> she loosened a gray flannel robe off her shoulder to show me evidence of what happens if a man bites. The robe was all she was wearing. I'm sorry if I frightened you, but when the beast got so tiresome, I just went out the window. I think he thinks I'm in the bathroom, not that I give a damn what he thinks. The hell with him. He'll get tired. He'll go to sleep. My God, he should. Eight martinis before dinner and enough wine to wash an elephant. (laughs) Listen, you can throw me out if you want to. I've got a gall barging in on you like this, but that fire escape was damned icy. And you look so cozy, like my brother Fred. We used to sleep four in a bed, and he was the only one that ever let me hug him on a cold night. By the way, do you mind if I call you Fred? She'd come completely into the room now, and she paused there, staring at me. I'd never seen her before, not wearing dark glasses, and it was obvious now that that they were prescription lenses, for without them, her eyes had an assessing squint, like a jeweler's. They were large eyes, a little blue, a little green, dotted with bits of brown, very colored like her hair. And like her hair, they gave out a lively, warm light. I suppose you think I'm very brazen or tray foo or something. Not at all. She seemed disappointed. Yes, you do. Everybody does. I don't mind. It's useful. She sat down on one of the rickety red velvet chairs, curved her legs underneath her, and glanced around the room, her eyes puckering more pronouncedly. How can you bear it? It's a chamber of horrors. Oh, you get used to anything, I said, annoyed with myself, for actually I was proud of the place. I don't. I'll never get used to anything. Anybody that does, they might as well be dead. Her dispraising eyes surveyed the room again. What do you do here all day? I motioned toward a table tall with books and paper, write things. I thought writers were quite old. Of course, Saroyan isn't old. I met him at a party and really isn't old at all. In fact, if he'd give himself a closer shave... By the way, is Hemingway old? In his 40s, I should think. That's not bad. I can't get excited by a man until he's 42. 
I know this idiot girl who keeps telling me I ought to go to a head shrinker. She says I have a father complex, which is so much mare. I simply trained myself to like older men, and it was the smartest thing I ever did. How old is W. Somerset Maugham? <laughs> I'm not sure, 60-something. That's not bad. I've never been to bed with a writer. No, wait. Do you know Benny Shacklett? She frowned when I shook my head. That's funny. He's written an awful lot of radio stuff, but tell rap. Tell me, are you a real writer? It depends on what you mean by real. Well, darling, does anyone buy what you write? <laughs> Not yet. I'm going to help you, she said. I can, too. Think of all the people I know who know people. I'm going to help you because you look like my brother Fred, only smaller. I haven't seen him since I was 14. That's when I left home, and he was already six feet two. My other brothers were more your size, runts. <laughs> it was the peanut butter that made Fred so tall. Everybody thought it was Dottie the way he gorged himself on peanut butter, but he didn't care about anything in this world except horses and peanut butter. But he wasn't Dottie, just sweet and vague and terribly slow. He'd been in the eighth grade three years when I ran away. Poor Fred. I wonder if the army's generous with their peanut butter. Which reminds me, I'm starving. I pointed to a bowl of apples at the same time asked her how and why she had left home so young. She looked at me blankly and rubbed her nose as though it tickled. A gesture seeing often repeated, I came to recognize as a signal that one was trespassing. Like many people with a bold fondness for volunteering intimate information, anything that suggested a direct question, a pinning down, put her on guard. She took a bite of apple and said, tell me something you've written, the story part. That's one of the troubles. They're not the kind of stories you can tell. Too dirty? <laughs> Maybe I'll let you read one sometime. Whiskey and apples go together. Fix me a drink, darling. Then you can read me a story yourself. Very few authors, especially the unpublished, can resist an invitation to read aloud. <laughs> I made us both a drink and, settling in a chair opposite, began to read to her, my voice a little shaky with a combination of stage fright and enthusiasm. It was a new story. I'd finished it the day before, and that inevitable sense of shortcoming and not had time to develop. It was about two women who share a house, school teachers, one of whom, when the other becomes engaged, spreads with anonymous notes a scandal that prevents the marriage. As I read, each glimpse I stole of Holly made my heart contract. She fidgeted. She picked apart the butts in an ashtray. She mooned over her fingernails as though longing for a file. Worse, when I did seem to have her interest, there was actually a telltale frost over her eyes, as if she were wondering whether to buy a pair of shoes she'd seen in some window. Like us at facebook.com slash sinmedia. Follow us on Twitter at sinmedia. And come visit us at syn.org.au.